Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Alan Lightman, an author, physicist, and longtime professor. He has written several books that sit at the interesting nexus between science and the humanities. His most recent is The Transcendent Brain, Spirituality in the Age of Science. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book, including how we ought to think about moments of transcendence in a scientific framework. Alan, Thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thank you, Sean, for inviting me. You describe in the book a profound experience that you had watching birds from your home in Maine. As the birds flew above, there's a split second in which you made eye contact. The moment left you shaken and tearful. You write, quote, To this day, I don't understand what happened in that half second, but it was a profound connection to nature and a feeling of being part of something much larger than myself, unquote. Talk about how you felt in that moment and how it relates to the book. Well, these weren't just ordinary birds. They were two adolescent ospreys that are the next biggest bird after eagles. They have very powerful claws, and uh, the two birds were taking their maiden voyage from the nest after watching me all summer, and I've been watching them grow up. And they could have ripped my face off in this maiden voyage. They did about a half-mile loop around the island, and then headed straight for me. And I was standing on my circular deck, which to them looked like my nest, probably. And uh, for about a second or less, when they got very close to me before zooming over the house, we made eye contact. And uh, it was an amazing experience of communion. I mean, almost sacred communion. I I felt like they were talking to me in that eye contact, like they were saying, we're not afraid of you. I I don't think you're afraid of us. We're kindred spirits. We're brothers. We've been sharing this island together. And it was something like that and that look. There have long been efforts to reconcile religion and science. Uh, I think, for instance, of Francis Collins' work, including the founding of the organization BioLogos with the mandate to bridge the divide. You argue in part that these efforts may be wrongheaded. Why? Well, I think that there are a number of people trying to use scientific arguments to prove the existence of God. And I won't go into details unless you want me to. There are other scientists who take the opposite approach. They try to use scientific arguments to disprove the existence of God. And by God, I mean an all-knowing, omniscient being who created the universe with purpose. That's what I mean by God. 
I think that all of these arguments, both pro and con, are misguided because I believe that such a being, as understood by most religions, exists outside of time and space. And you can't really use scientific arguments to either prove or disprove the existence of such a being. You have to either take it, its existence as a matter of faith or reject it as a matter of faith. So I, I just think that, that these people, uh, although uh, I, I respect them, they're distinguished scientists. Richard Dawkins, by the way, is the leader of the other camp. I respect them, but I think that they're barking up the wrong tree here. To use an American expression. <laughs> if spiritual experiences like the one you described aren't an expression of metaphysics, what are they? What is consciousness and where does it come from? Well, I think spiritual experiences, which for me are the feeling of being part of something larger than yourself, the appreciation of beauty, feeling being connected to nature, I think that they are produced and, and consequences of, of a very well-developed brain. Of course, consciousness is the fundamental mental experience that we have, and spiritual experiences are a subset of consciousness. And although we can't fill in all the blanks, I think neuroscientists, and I agree with them, believe that all mental experiences are a result of the 100 billion neurons in our brains and, and the the interconnections between them. The brain is a is the human brain is probably the most complex object in the universe that we know about. And it's capable of all kinds of amazing phenomena, consciousness being one of them, our ability to to write symphonies and poetries, our ability to build cities, all of these things that we do, that we humans do, are a consequence of a very highly developed brain. I think that consciousness, whatever it is, is a graded phenomenon. I, I don't think that it's an all or nothing thing. I think that the crows and dolphins clearly have some level of consciousness and other non-human animals as well. But it appears that, that human beings have the highest level of consciousness that we know of. And there are probably other intelligent creatures living out, out in the universe somewhere that have even more developed brains than we do and have even a higher level of consciousness than what we have. Talk about the difference in terms of consciousness across species. What explains them? Is higher levels of consciousness a reflection of intelligence or some other factors? You know, maybe put differently, Alan, why would you have the extraordinary experience of connecting with your natural surroundings and others may not? Well, I think that human consciousness, which includes uh, self-awareness, an ego, the, the, the strong sensation of being present in the world, the ability to plan for the future. Uh, the, these are all aspects of human consciousness. I think that they are byproducts of other traits that had survival benefit. And uh, biologists have talked about some traits that we have that had direct survival benefit, like fear, but other traits that are byproducts of traits with direct survival benefit. For example, the ability to write poetry probably did not have direct survival benefit, but a sensitivity to sounds and rhythms, which is at the core of poetry, probably did have direct survival benefit. 
And we know that the human brain went through a, a rapid period of development between about 800,000 years ago and 200,000 years ago, when our brain increased very dramatically in capacity. And we, we also know that that period of time is closely connected to a period of time where, when the weather changed dramatically. And so anthropologists uh, think that the development of a very high capacity of the human brain has survival benefit in being able to adapt to rapidly changing weather conditions. And once you have that highly developed brain capacity, other things are a consequence of that. So that's what I mean by a, a byproduct of a trait that had direct survival benefit. So I think that spirituality and other functions that we have are a natural result of having a, a brain with a very high capacity. Alan, if I can just follow up on your response, in understanding the evolutionary development of consciousness, you cite Mills's theory of, quote, emergence. What is emergence and how does it fit into your story? Emergent phenomena are phenomena that arise from systems of many different parts working together that cannot be understood on the basis of, of understanding the individual elements of the system. For example, there's a certain species of fireflies that when they get together in a, in a field on a summer night, that initially they, they, they blink randomly and without connection to each other at random times. But after a few moments, they begin blinking in synchrony. That's sort of a qualitative phenomena of a lot of individual fireflies. But you can't understand that, that synchronous blinking by analyzing a single firefly. You can study a single firefly to death, but still not be able to predict or understand exactly why a group of fireflies will, will begin blinking in synchrony. And uh, there are many other e examples in the physical world where systems of, of many parts have overall qualitative behavior that, that can't be understood on the basis of the individual parts. And our brain, of course, is the paramount example of that, where we can understand the workings of individual single neurons very well. We can understand the chemicals that flow through them, the electrical currents that are produced of individual neurons. But we can't possibly, on, on that basis, predict all of the amazing things that 100 billion neurons are capable of. One thing I wondered throughout the book is the seeming disconnect between our yearning for spirituality and your case that spiritual experiences are ultimately rooted in materialism. You describe that yearning as, quote, natural as love, hunger, or desire, unquote. What explains this innate search for spirituality? Why do so many people want to believe in something beyond the material world? Well, that's a great question. And I think ultimately, the yearning that you're speaking of is an attempt to cope with our mortality. I think the, the, the knowledge of our mortality that we have limited lifetimes, I think, is, is one of the principal drivers of everything that we do, all of human civilization. And I believe that, that the 
uh, the desire, the belief in an afterlife, you know, that more than 50% of the world's population believes in an afterlife, the the, the belief in, in an eternal soul, the belief in heaven, the belief in God, that all of those beliefs are driven by an attempt to cope with our mortality. Let, let me follow up if that's okay. If I understand correctly, you argue that these spiritual experiences themselves actually serve something of an evolutionary function. How? What's their purpose besides, say, splendor or joy? Well, let's say let's take one uh, elementary spiritual experience, and that's the, the the feeling of being connected to nature. And I think all of us have that feeling at, at different times. Taking a walk through the woods without our cell phones, of course looking at a sunset, looking at the stars at night. I think that, that our, our, our strong feeling of connection to nature probably is hardwired into our brain from the time a couple of million years ago when we were very dependent upon understanding nature for our survival. A million years ago, we didn't live in, in the brick buildings that we do today, which is a very recent phenomenon. We, we we lived out in the open and we had to be attuned to our natural habitat to survive. That one of the, the most fundamental parts of surviving in the open is is where you choose to live, habitat selection. And if you choose the right place to live, maybe by a, a, a stream of water or a place where you understand what the natural predators are so that you're not eaten, a place that has a, a good food supply. If you understand uh, the climate changes and all of that, all of those bits of knowledge increase your, your chance of survival. And so an affinity for nature would have had a direct survival benefit. And I think that that affinity was hardwired into our brain and is the reason why all of us today, a million years later, feel connected to nature, feel feel happy when we're, we're outside and walking in the woods or looking up at the sky. We, we feel happier. And, and a number of psychologists have studied that and have confirmed that we human beings feel more fulfilled, feel, feel replenished, feel happier, more content when we have a, a direct experience with nature. So I think that that has a long evolutionary history, that particular element of spirituality. And, and the other elements, they're, they're similar evolutionary origins for them, I believe. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. I wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed, a new series that we're dropping. It's six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the big ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050 and we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the Hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts. So if you're enjoying them, please listen to these episodes with Pathways. 
give us your feedback. We'd love your input, but also share them with friends and family. That would be greatly appreciated. With that advertisement over, let's go back to our regular programming. I want to read a short passage from the book that almost struck me as a form of materialist metaphysics. It may be my favorite representation of your notion of spiritual materialism. You write, quote, For me, the notion that our atoms were once part of other people and will again become part of other people after we die provides a meaningful connectedness between us and the rest of humanity, future and past, unquote. Can you talk a bit about this idea? How does materialism ultimately connect us to others, including in the past and the future? There's very good evidence that the atoms in our bodies, other than the two smallest atoms, hydrogen and helium, were manufactured in in stars, at the centers of stars, uh, where, where small atoms fuse together to make heavier atoms like oxygen and silicon and carbon and all the elements that make life. And we know that massive stars, after a, a billion years or so, explode and spew their elements out into space. And we've seen these explosions with our telescopes. They're called supernova. And we believe that the material in which our solar system formed several billion years ago was a condensation of this material blown out by a number of stars. In other words, seeded with the carbon and oxygen and other elements, and then condensed to form planets and, and oceans and trees and, and live, other living things. So we, we, we believe that, that all of the atoms in our bodies, except for the two lightest ones, came from stars. In fact, if you could, if you could label each of the atoms in your body and trace them backwards in time, back to the formation of the Earth and the formation of the solar system and beyond, you would find that each of the atoms in your body, except for the hydrogen and helium, originated in particular stars, particular stars. Those stars are now long gone. Likewise, uh, if we could tag each of our atoms, uh, maybe with our social security number, after we die, we could follow those atoms as they mixed with soil and air and oceans. We would find that many of our atoms would become parts of other people, not yet born, but people of the future. So that we are literally, we will be literally connected to other human beings of the future. And likewise, all of our atoms in the past, when I, when I say all, I mean all of human beings living on earth now, all of our atoms originated with a common origin at the centers of stars. We've touched on the subject of death. I want to come back to it now. You've previously written in one of your novels about what you think happens to us when we die. How does death fit in the new book? And in particular, how does it similarly connect us with people and time? Well, I take the view that we human beings, and I guess the, the genus Homo is, is two million years old, and, and the, our particular species, Homo sapiens, is, is a few hundred thousand years old. I think of, of, of human beings as part of a, of a long chain of connectedness. I mean, we, we study the, the books and artifacts of people that were 
written before us, and they studied the books that were written before them, and they studied stories before there was writing that that we've we've passed down to each other not only knowledge but a, a view of the world, a sense of being alive in the cosmos. And I think that this connects all of us in, in a long chain of being. There's another connection, and that is that life in the universe can exist only during a relatively narrow period. You have to have uh, stars to make life for the reasons that we discussed earlier, but but the stars in the sky will eventually burn out, and eventually there will no longer be any en energy source to support life in the universe. And in cosmic terms, it's a relatively short period of time in which life of any kind can exist in the universe. Materially, life is, is also rare because if you look at all of the material in the universe and you ask what fraction of it is in living form, and we, we sort of extrapolate up here from, from the Earth, from our uh, biosphere on Earth, you find that only about one billionth of one billionth of all material in the universe is in living form. But that's like a few grains of sand on the Gopi Desert. So that we living beings are very rare in both time and space, and, and we are the only means by which the universe can observe itself. We living beings, uh, which are very rare, both in time and space, are the only way that the universe can, can describe itself, can be aware of itself. And so that also seems to me to, to connect us. I know it's a, a very abstract concept, but I think, you know, in some ways, life itself is pretty abstract. I mean, it's pretty amazing that a group of atoms and molecules can get together and produce consciousness. I mean, that to me is one of the most amazing things in the physical world. So, so all of these things are, are pretty amazing once you really think hard about them and don't just take them for granted. Yes, indeed. One of the obvious questions that stems from the book and its ideas is what it ultimately means for mystery. One of the reasons I liked it so much is, is that it doesn't read like a dogmatic rejection of mystery or our instinct towards the mysterious. You write, for instance, that, quote, if you pull on the thread far enough, you ultimately arrive at the mysterious. When at age 20, I learned why the sky was blue, my awe of the universe did not diminish, unquote. There's a counterintuitive case, in fact, that the book helps us to enjoy mystery. Do you want to talk about how we should think about mystery and its compatibility with spiritual materialism? I think that mystery is an opportunity to be open to the world. There's a Hindu concept called darshan, which can be loosely interpreted to mean being open to the divine. And the divine doesn't necessarily have to mean God. It can just mean the universe, the majesty of the universe, or the majesty in a grain of sand. It's, it's being open to things that you don't fully understand. One of my favorite comments of Einstein is, quote, the most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. It stands at the cradle of true science and true art. And I think by the mysterious, Einstein didn't mean something supernatural. He didn't mean something frightening. He meant something like 
standing at the edge between the known and the unknown and feeling awe. I think that that mystery fuels our creativity and, and our desire to explore the world. If we had all the answers to everything, uh, I think that the motivation of a, lot, of a lot of our activity would would end. I think when a when a painter paints a painting, they or when a writer writes a novel, that they are discovering things about themselves. It, it's it's a process of self discovery, and I think that the the, the unknown is also one of the motivations uh, in science. There's some scientists who think that ultimately we will have the the, the final theory that does not need any re- revision, the ultimate equation. And I personally hope that we we never get there, that we will continue to unravel new new secrets about nature and about the universe. What has been the reaction, Alan, to your notion of spiritual materialism? Are people open to the idea? Or does it cause them to close to the potential of mystery and, in some cases, faith or religious traditions? I think most people are open to the idea. Of course, the the word spirituality is a loaded word, and some people are, are put off by that word just by itself. There are, of course, many people, probably the majority of, of people in the world, who believe that there are non-material parts of existence, who believe in the soul, which is a non-material thing, believe in other non-material essences. So that group does does not completely buy my concept of materialism, which is that the, the world is made of atoms and molecules and nothing more. But I do think that, that the concept of, of being materialist, uh, that is, belief that the world is atoms and molecules and nothing more, which is more or less the scientific view, and the acknowledgement of the grandeur and importance of, of spiritual experiences, I think that concept of, of having both of those worldviews or affinities or abilities does offer a way to make science fully compatible with spirituality. So. I've gotten mixed reactions depending on the worldviews of the particular people, but but I do think it's it's a reasonable point of view to take, especially for a scientist. I agree. As a materialist, do you think there's anything, any form of evidence that might cause you to revisit some of these assumptions, to cause you, like as you write about your wife, be open to the possibility that we even have souls? Well, I think that every scientist has to be open to all possibilities. And the whole scientific method is based upon a certain amount of skepticism of, of, of not accepting any theory without testing it, of doing experiments. So I think that, that all of us, including scientists, need to be open to discovering new things. Personally, I don't think that there is any evidence so far in the long history of of recorded human civilization, including the history of science. I don't think there's been any evidence of a non-material essence, but I think that, you know, that I could be convinced given sufficient evidence. I don't think there's been any evidence so far. And so my worldview that the world is made of atoms and molecules and nothing more 
is based upon all of the experience and experiments with the natural world that we've had so far. That's a fascinating answer. And this has been a fascinating conversation about a fascinating book. It's called The Transcendent Brain, Spirituality in the Age of Science. Alan Lightman, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you, Sean, for having me as a guest on Hub Dialogue. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.